Colossians 4, the very, very end of this good letter, as we've studied for quite a while now. I won't say how long, because I don't remember when we started studying through Colossians, but I think it's been a good study. I've enjoyed it, learned lots, and hopefully shared some good things with y'all. We get to consider the lives of two servants of the Lord and co-workers of the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, and at this last few paragraphs or lines of the letter, he is giving greetings from this and the other person. He is saying, you know, Tychicus is bringing the letter, and I'm sending Onesimus back to you, and all these, these interesting things that are going on. But here in verse 14, he mentions a particularly dear co-worker that has been with him for a long time, going on, well, let's see, how, how long would it be? Um, Ten years at this point, perhaps somewhere along that line, uh, this man Luke and another man Demas or Damas that, he is, that are mentioned here. This is after several other workers that he've men- he's mentioned back in verse 7, of course. He talked about Tychicus uh, that he talked very highly of and Onesimus, a former slave, but now returning to his master as a, as a believer and beloved. He mentions in verses 10 and 11, three Jewish believing co-workers, Aristarchus and uh, Mark, John Mark, and Jesus, who is called Justice, and that they were proving to be an encouragement or a comfort, as it says here in verse 11, to him. Then, of course, he mentions Epaphras, Epaphras, who is one of your number, probably the founding pastor of the church, or founding evangelist, anyway, of the church in Colossae, and probably also active in the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras was a dear and devoted shepherd, had a shepherd's heart for his people, so much so that he undertook a thousand-mile journey because of the issues, doctrinal issues that were facing that church in Colossae, traveled to see Paul, who was imprisoned in Rome, a thousand miles away. Not Not an easy journey for him to undertake, but he did it for the sake of the church. And so we read about Epaphras last week uh, with, or last, when, yeah, last week, verses 12 and 13. That verse 13, of course, says, I testify to him that he has a deep concern, a pain, a deep pain for you and for those who are at Laodicea and Hierapolis. What is he concerned about? That they would stand fully, or stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. A tremendous minister, tremendous servant of the Lord that we looked at last time. But verse 14, rather, introduces us to this man, Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, sends his greetings. These, these Luke and Damas are, are saying hi. They're co-workers of, of Paul there in Rome as they have traveled with him in various other places. But Luke, the name Luke, anyway, is mentioned only four times in Scripture. You'd think for somebody who wrote over a quarter, over 27% of the New Testament, maybe we'd know a little bit more about him. Well, we know this about him. He was a Gentile, kind of by implication, as it says here in verse, uh, where did it go? Verse 11, he says of these three workers, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who's called Justice, these are the only fellow workers from the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. At that time in his life, the only Jewish believers working alongside him were those three just mentioned. Luke is one who, according to various histor- histories or historical um, accounts, was born in Antioch of Syria. I think it was Antioch of Syria. I might be wrong on that. It was Antioch of somewhere. But that name Antioch was assigned to a whole bunch of different cities because of Antiochus. You know, Antioch, anyway, a lot of history there. But um, he was born there, but he in, was introduced to Paul when Paul came to Troas. Remember in the second missionary journey, 
Paul was trying to minister in this place and this place and this place, and the Holy Spirit prevented him. But then, having come down to Troas, he had that missionary, that that, uh, Macedonian uh, call that, uh, hey, come on over and help us over in Macedonia, which is across the the way into Europe. So different continent. He was ministering in Asia all this while. Now he's in Europe, our our present-day, what we'd call Europe, or modern-day Greece. In that city of Troas, which is near the ancient city of Troy, similar uh, name and so forth, there is, uh, there was rather, this man Luke who was ministering. Now, uh, how we know that this, that Luke and Paul got connected was, is, because in Acts chapter 16, recording that second missionary journey, <coughs> we see, for example, in verse 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region and so forth and so forth, and so on, and then... Um, they were doing this. Paul had this vision in verse 9 and verse 10. Uh, says, when, we ha- when he, Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Well, there's a change from they, a third-person perspective, Paul and his, his traveling companions there. And now Luke, who's writing Acts, says we then sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the gospel to them. So the, the question is, well, when did Luke hear the gospel? How did he come to faith? It evidently wasn't through Paul's ministry, or maybe it was. He hadn't been to Troas before. Where, had, where has Luke been? We just don't know. We don't know much about uh, Luke, although we know from that point on he is a very close associate. In fact, at the end of his life, the, the, the final time that Luke's name is mentioned, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, Paul says, only Luke is with me. And you think, really, of all these wonderful associates, of course, he's sent these different people to work. Timothy he says, come before winter, and so forth. But he has said to Titus, go this way, and to Aristarchus, go over here. He's assigned different people not to be with him at the end of his life, expecting fully to be killed for the sake of the gospel. But he says, I'm concerned for the church. I don't need these people around me. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to receive my reward. But I need the church to be supported. And so he sends all of his people out, but he keeps, or maybe he can't, get rid of. I don't know what the relationship was. Very close. Luke. Luke is with him. In fact, he says, only Luke is with me. But he asked for Timothy to come. Timothy is, if Luke is, you know, I don't know, want to, don't want to get partial, but if, if Luke is his left-hand man, Timothy is his right-hand man, or vice versa, whichever. Luke and Timothy are very close associates of him. Luke is that one, of course, who wrote the gospel. The gospel according to Luke, as the superscription of, the, of that gospel records, his name does not appear in Acts at all. It only appears here, Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 4, and then one other time in Philemon. Similar greetings, similar names, because Philemon, Paul wrote to Philemon, who was a resident of Colossae, the same time he wrote the letter to the Colossian church. And so the same names, Mark and Aristarchus and Damas and Luke, he mentions here, uh, and uh, Paphras mentioned at the end of Philemon. So Luke is a, a wonderful worker for the Lord, one who, again, wrote 27, over 27% of the New Testament. It's more than Paul. Of course, Paul wrote a lot of epistles. It's more than the third most popular, most uh, verbose writer in the New Testament is John. John's gospel, John's epistles, the revelation of, of, of Jesus Christ, which John recorded. So he, so it's Luke and Paul and, and John are the most um, verbose writers in the New Testament, of course, the Holy Spirit guiding them all. But we see that Luke is here regarded as a beloved or the beloved physician. He is one. Now, medicine has, has progressed, I should say, over the many centuries, and there is some 
concern or, or discussion regarding, okay, a lot of the medicine in that first century is kind of quackery and, and uh, superstition and um, not valuable at all. In fact, that uh, story about the account of the uh, lady the, with the hemorrhage, she went to many physicians and spent a lot of money on it and wasn't helped by anyone. Well, Luke doesn't record that last little detail, that she wasn't helped by all these physicians. The other gospel, I think Mark makes that point. But, but Luke is very careful to give very specific, even medical terminology regarding things. For example, uh, when Jesus was sweating drops of, uh, of, of blood, as it were, of blood, Luke is the one who, who specifies that and, and identifies various things about the physicality, the, the, the physical body of Jesus. It could be, again, some, some branch of medicine, some branch of physicians over here, as it's described, are on the, the false side, on the, the making up as I go along, trying to get a, a quick buck, you know, selling their, their, um, their tonic or, or doing certain things or maybe even doing surgeries on people. A lot of surgery, a lot of advancement in surgery, by the way, happened in relation to warfare as you have to set bones or, or address wounds or even with head injuries, there's evidence of, I forget the name of the, of the surgery, but it's where you try to relieve pressure on the brain, the blood, the swelling, and so forth by drilling a hole in the skull. That, there's evidence of that from the first century and around that time period. So how much was Luke involved with that? From his writing, Luke's gospel and, and Acts are, are pretty... You wouldn't want a first-year Greek student translating in Luke or Acts because his, his Greek is very refined. It's very beautiful. It's, it's, he uses a lot of unique words, both from his probably his physical, his physician's background, but also because I don't think he was one of those quack doctors. I think he was a learned, well-read, well-studied, reasonable fellow. You can read about his approach to writing this history of the church in Acts 1, 1 through 4, and he says, you know, I've, I've set this, even Luke 1, 1 through 4, he says very similar things, that he set these things out in order, he investigated these things carefully, and now he's presenting in a, a reasonable fashion this narrative of Christ's life and then now of Christ's work through the church. This idea of physicians, are again, those who deal with the care of the body, and those who help uh, and advance healing, those who address physical ailments. So Luke is very useful. Did Paul have physical ailments? Well, he certainly had ailments or injuries given to him through the course of his ministry, and Luke was there to address those things. Of course, the one time, or the first time maybe, that was he was stoned, uh, Luke wasn't there. That was his first missionary journey. But God raised him up. You know, he's, here he is dying or having died out in the street over here and he gets up goes back into the city speaks to the disciples and then moves on you think paul you've just been killed are you fine you're doing fine okay well let's go on and it's just startling how how god su supported and supplied for paul's ministry and even this nearness of a physician it's not wrong to use physicians now we can look back in the old testament and realize that asa king asa had a disease in his feet uh, this is Second Chronicles 16, verse 12. He had a disease in his feet uh, in the 39th year of his reign. His disease was severe, yet even as in his disease, he did not seek Yahweh, but the physicians. Now, that's not an excuse for us to say, well, I'm not going to seek physicians. I'm going to seek the Lord. Good. Seek the Lord. And why don't you consult a doctor that might have a little bit of insight into what's going on? Maybe you need an antibiotic. Maybe you need a uh, your, your bone kind of looks like it's out of place. You look like you have three elbows. Let's let's try to make sure that maybe maybe you need something. 
Uh, and so physicians were useful back in the Old Testament time period, obviously Asa, uh, which would be, let's see, Asa's, um, you know, Hezekiah anyway, 700 B.C., so, you know, 700 years before, before the, the, type, the time of Jesus there on earth. Physicians were helping. And this one, this Luke, is called somebody who, who is helping Paul, perhaps even a, a personal assistant, personal uh, physician for Paul. It is interesting. Many people would say, oh, the, the highest calling is to serve as, as a pastor. Well, that is a high calling. It's a high calling to serve as a mother. It's a high calling to serve in any position that you may be if you want to serve as a bus driver, a plumber, uh, even the president of the United States. You know, that, that's a, a calling. That's a vocation. You can serve in that way. Wherever you are, serve the Lord. Do everything heartily as to the Lord. Do your work as to the Lord. Luke used his training, used his experience to support Paul in his important work, and he, by doing so, ministered through the word that he wrote, Luke and Acts. And, and again, he is called the beloved. This, this it's kind of an emphasis, he's a physician, but he is the beloved one, not just because he's a physician, because he gives material aid to, to Paul, but because he was a close companion, because he had like-mindedness. The reason why, by the way, how, how can a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, write over a quarter of the New Testament? He's not an apostle. He's not even a Jewish guy. How, how, how dare he do these things? Well, because he was so closely aligned with an apostle. He was so closely aligned with Paul in the same way that Mark, John Mark, who we read about here in, verse, or in chapter 4 and verse uh, 10, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, he wrote a gospel named after him, of course, Mark, and yet he wasn't an apostle. How, how, how do we receive his gospel as a valid account? Because he was a close associate of Peter. Uh, Peter mentions that, you know, my son uh, Mark is, uh, is, uh, emphasizes that relationship. So the point being is Luke had a tremendous role. He doesn't have any speaking roles, although, again, he, he wrote Luke and Acts, and so we have his testimony recorded there. Uh, and he is called this beloved one, this one who is so delightful, so refreshing to Paul. Just as he said of those other men at the end of verse 11, they have proved to be a comfort, an encouragement, a, a, a balm, as, as much as a physician. You know, is, there's a song that comes from a verse in, um, oh, where was it? It's in the Old Testament. Is there a balm in Gilead? Where did that go? It's not jumping out at me. Oh, there it is. Jeremiah 8 and verse 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician? Same word as we see here there. Why then has the health of the daughter of my people gone up? Has not the health. So there's balm, right? There's a, a treatment. There's some kind of, a, of a, uh, an ointment or some kind of extra thing. And there's a physician. Hey, there's a physician here. So why isn't there health? Why isn't there uh, advancement in, in life? It's because they were looking at the wrong things. God was judging his people back in Jeremiah's prophecy. But physicians were very useful. Luke is spoken of here as the beloved physician, the one who is just so, so appreciated by Paul. And so he sends you his greetings. He says, hi, it's great. And again, the, the idea is, what's the importance of, of these greetings? Why does even Paul record them? Why is almost the whole chapter, last chapter of Romans, you know, greet so-and-so, and greet so-and-so, and greet this so-and-so's mama, and greet so and 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 then, you know, and I'll give your greetings, and just greetings, greetings all the way. It is important, just as Paul had in his ministry, the close association. We're not just 
our own selves. We're not just independent Christians. Uh, it's not just Jesus and me, and I don't need anybody else. We need each other. We need the relationships. We need the support of one another. Paul was a phenomenal apostle, but he needed his people. He needed coworkers. He needed assistance. He needed the advancement of the faith of his people. He was very much dependent, just as Epaphras was, had great pains for the, the sake of the Colossian church. Paul um, you know, multiply that times I don't know how many concern for that church over here and this church over here and the church back in Antioch and the church in Athens and the church in Corinth and the church in Ep- uh, Ephesus and the church in well, Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, his beloved friends in Philippi and all these different churches and people are writing him, sending him messengers and he is just overwhelmed with this and yet he takes time to emphasize personal relationships. Why do we have genealogies in the Old Testament and the New Testament? To emphasize God works with individuals, and he's brought us into a, a body, both in Israel as a nation, but in the body of Christ. Now we have connection, not just with Christ, but with each other. And so the greetings are very important, and they give a, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of even obligation. Oh, Luke says, Luke says hi to us? Who are we that we'd be on his mind? And so that kind of raises us up, not in arrogance and pride, but in responsibility before the Lord. Oh, well, if Luke wants to say hi and Paul is doing this, Paul is taking time to write us a letter, then we need to listen and we need to grow. We need to do what God wants us to do. He mentions one other person here verse four, at the end of verse 14, and also Demas or Damas. It doesn't say anything about Damas, just his name. This name, Damas, appears a few times. Let's see, one, two three times in, no, no, just two times, no, three times here. Damas is this one who is mentioned here in Colossians 4 and verse 14, Philemon, verse 24, and also in a very negative sense, in as much as we saw Luke, hey, only Luke is with me, well, that's because Damas abandoned Paul. Ah, man, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10 is not a good thing. Again, in terms of timetable, time frame, this, Paul is writing to the Colossians around 61, 62, um, 80, 61, 62. By the time of 67, just a few years later, uh, Paul has been imprisoned again, arrested and, and brought to Rome, expecting to die in prison. So he's writing his last letter, 2 Timothy, uh, his second letter to Timothy, which we have, of course, as 2 Timothy. And he gives all these different things. He says, I've sent so-and-so here and this and the other thing. But here in verse 10, Demas having loved this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know exactly where Damas is from, but he goes and is not spoken of very very nicely here. He's not mentioned here. Maybe Paul already has some inclinations that something's not quite right with Damas. He, he's too infatuated with the world. He says by, this, by just a few years later, Damas having loved this present age, having loved the advantages of fitting in and having the advantages of of uh, just getting along with people, having the advantages of whatever it was that attracted him, he having love. This is not a, a sudden thing. This is not a uh, a one-time issue. This is a, a pretty steady commitment that Damas has. He loves it. He loves what's going on. It's interesting how, in the Lord's providence, we read in Second or excuse me, First John chapter two at the end of that uh, chapter. It says the it talks about the love of the world and that we should not love the things of the world. It's not at the end of the chapter. It's the end of our reading, verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2. 
verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Well, wait a minute, Damas just did. Is he doing it as an apostolic designee? Is he doing it because of his love for Christ? He's loving the world? No. John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Damas gave up all of his earnings, all of his rewards, all of his devotion to Christ for the sake of what? Something that is passing away? Something that is vanity? Something that is transitory? Something that will end and not end well? I mean, there are some things that will end, and we appreciate them, but this, this whole thing about lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and boastful pride of life, that leads to destruction, that leads to judgment, that leads to condemnation. And Damas, having been associate of Paul all this while, says, yeah, I think I'd like that over here. Rather than all this stuff that Paul's been talking, I've been talking about it. Demas is one who has been a, a missionary, an associate, whether, whatever his role has been, of Paul. And now he says, nah, I don't want it. It is startling for us to realize that the progress or the identity we have right now today, that doesn't secure us in our own selves. In Christ, yes, we are secure in Christ, but in our own selves, man, we are prone to wander. And do we know, just like Asa, he did not seek the Lord, he sought the physicians. Where, where is God in your life? Where Do you crawl upon him? Do you, are you satisfied with him? Are you more enamored with the things that the world offers, the thinking, the, 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 the status, the, the popularity of the world, rather than being faithful and true to God? Loving Christ, serving him, Damas, he did not. He did not finish well. Luke, evidently, at least a time of, of uh, 2 Timothy 4 and verse, verse uh, 10, was it? Verse 11. Verse 11. Only Luke is with me. There's that devotion, that continuity that Timothy finished well. Uh, Hebrews at the end of it mentions about, you know, notice Timothy has been released. Released from what? Prison. Timothy. Uh, remember in 2 Timothy, Paul says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but fight. Fight the good fight of it. Timothy, don't be ashamed of these things. And Timothy wasn't. Maybe we, he gets the, the record for being kind of timid and kind of shy, but he was bold. He finished very well. Peter also, who, who forsook that he even knew Jesus back at the trial of Jesus, uh, died for Christ's sake. Damas did not. Be careful what you do. James 4 has a similar word. James 4 and verse 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Did Damas know about that? I think so. Paul was very careful, even in, in his initial uh, preachings to, to new, new places about the judgment of God. Righteousness, yes, gift righteousness through Christ, but also judgment and condemnation. Be careful how you live because it does testify of your relationship with God. Is the love of God in you? Then don't love the world. Can you use the world? Can you appreciate the world? Yes. Can you eat good food? Yes, you can eat good food. But like 1 Timothy 4 says, everything is made clean if it's received with an attitude of thanksgiving and prayer. Everything is, it's God loves to get, give good gifts to his children, but sometimes we would prefer the gift rather than the giver. We, we just latch onto that, and we forget that God is the source of all of our, all of our lives. Damas is one who turned aside. Don't be like Damas. Be like Paul, be like Timothy, be like Luke. 
Well, he says here in verse 15, changes gears a little bit. No more greetings from. Now he says, greet, give our greetings to uh, the brothers. You, you greet them on our behalf. You, you make sure that you are active in sharing our relationship with you, the, even this, this letter, as he will talk about in just a moment. He says, greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea. Again, just maybe 10 miles to the west of Colossae. Colossae, by the way, was a major city back in the uh, you know, 500, 400s B.C., but uh, things change, you know, trade routes change, and different you know, things always change over the course of time, especially over hundreds of years, things will change. The commerce center really shifted over to Laodicea. And so it was a larger city, larger church. Uh, was Epaphras involved with the founding of the church there in Laodicea? I don't know. Of course, Laodicea is mentioned in Revelation 3, not in a good way. Talking about vomit, talking about lukewarm, you better change. You, you think you're so rich and satisfied because, again, because they had become a, a commercial center. They were, I mean, like a New York City, right on the major trade route, and all the things were coming back and forth through them. But he says, you're empty. You need to acknowledge your dependency upon me, that you are so dependent on me. I can take away a trade route. I can take all these things. I can, I can end life for you but I can also give it when you acknowledge me. Acknowledge me, draw near to me. At this point, around 61, 62, Laodicea is a a thriving church. It's going well. He says, hey, greet those brothers. Greet those ones who are in Christ, who have a relationship with us. They live in Laodicea, but they are in Christ, and we have a relationship with one another. Greet them on our behalf. Now, it says brothers. Of course, it includes those who are of any um, uh, ethnic origin. Remember back in, in Colossians 3 and verse 11, uh, Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, all those different situations. Male or female, doesn't say that so much in, in Colossians, but in Galatians 3, it talks about male and female. You are all one in Christ, so greet the brothers, those who are in. Doesn't, regardless of age or gender or status of life, slave or free, anything, greet them. Give, give our blessing, give our concern, give our best wishes to them. One more word about that. When you, when you are interacting with people, and even folks you haven't talked to in a long time, do give your greetings. Do give your best wishes. Do encourage them. Say, you know, uh, give a blessing from the Lord. Give a, a kind word. You know, may God bless you in your work or your endeavors or in your family or in this health situation. Or, or Give a godly perspective. Direct things upward. This greeting is not so much even uh, interpersonal. Some It is, but it's always something that builds up and directs the attention of uh, uh, upward to God himself. So he says, greet those brothers in Laodicea. And here's a little difference, maybe if you have the King James or New King James Version, or I think those are probably the predominant ones, modern translations anyway. It may read, and also Nymphas and the church that is in his house. And you say, well, that would be a different person, wouldn't it? Is this a man or a woman, this Nympha? And long story short, it's probably a lady there are various reasons for that. It's probably a lady, Nympha, and the church that is in her house. The idea is that this is somebody who has a house that the church, probably in Laodicea, is meeting in. It may be that the church in Colossae was meeting in, well, actually, how did it say, in the Philemon. Philemon chapter 1. Well, Philemon just has one chapter, but... To Philemon, our fellow, beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it may be that it's either Philemon or, or maybe Apphia is his wife, and then who is this Archippus? We'll see him 
in, in back in Colossians, but there was a church, probably the church in Colossae, meeting in that house. Yeah, well, where's their church building? Is it under renovation like our place, or, or what's the deal? They met in houses. In fact, there is really a lack, and of course you don't want to argue from silence so much, but there's a, there is good evidence, rather, that churches, assemblies, groups like this, people gathered together, met in homes. Or, especially when the persecution began in Rome, in Rome, the city, they met underground. They met in catacombs. I mean, that's underground burial chambers. They met wherever they could, maybe out in the forest, um, away from people. They, just, they, they were trying to meet because that's important for Christians to meet. But in this time when there's relative freedom and uh, ability for people to gather voluntarily, they were meeting in homes because they didn't have church buildings to, to, so much. And, you know, I don't get after people who, who make the big point, hey, I'm going to church today. Well, do you mean the, the meeting of the church, like the service, the church service? Do you mean you're going to the building, the church? Do you mean you're going to gather with the church? You know, the church being us people, you know, the whole ch- children's thing about the church, and I can't do it, the steeple thing. Uh, the church is the people, right? So here he says the church is meeting in her house. And you think, oh, good, she, she has some kind of a, auditorium or something in her house and she has all the altar and no the people that's the church the church is meeting in her house the church can meet out in the forest can meet by the riverside and as, as they did when i was a synagogue but in philippi remember with lydia they they met around the riverside and had a prayer time because there wasn't a synagogue so much it's predominantly jewish or excuse me roman colony roman colony was philippi the point here is this church is meeting in nympha this lady's home. There were, they didn't have basilicas that came hundreds of years later, you know, big, beautiful churches de- designated for the worship of God, for the fellowship of the saints, and as it came to be, the practicing of, of the sacraments and so forth, as you know, the church got more organized, and I would say disorganized, because it misused those, those uh, ordinances of the Lord, the Lord's table and, and baptism and, and those things. Even, yeah, so the church is the people. He says the church is meeting in that house. The church can meet anywhere. Parking lots, we've seen innovation, innovative solutions to difficulties or challenges for the church gathering. I think the, the common theme, though, is something that would be unheard of 2,000 years ago. Oh, you're, you're meeting online? You're meeting virtually? How, how does that work? And so this person's in a different state or city, and, this, and we're meeting online. We need to see each other. We don't make a big deal of that commandment. It's repeated at least two times in Scripture. Greet each other with a holy kiss. You can do that online, virtually. I mean, we need to be face-to-face with one another. We need to be present with one another, this assembly. In fact, that's the whole word. Church means an assembly, one who, people who have been called together for a purpose. To hear a preacher, usually, a preacher it works both in, in Hebrew and in Greek, the, the word um, preacher or to, or to preach and the word and the idea of those who are being preached to emphasizes this identity, this, this, uh, this church that's gathered together. We have seen in Colossians, also in Ephesians, a very parallel letter, this word church mostly refer to the universal church, which would be the churches in Laodicea and Colossae, all the, all the people who are in Christ, the church as mentioned. Uh, that Jesus is the head of the church. Well, he wasn't just the head of the, of the Colossian church or this church or wherever he is the head of the church, those who are in Christ. But we also see it 
Actually, the only time we see it referring to a local church is here in these verses, 15 and 16, in those two letters, Ephesians and Colossians. Only here is it mentioned in, re- in relation to a local congregation. But he, he says, look, I give greetings to those in Laodicea. I'm not, you know, I'm not partial to you guys or to them. I want everybody to receive my best wishes and, and encouragement and, and words, as he says here in verse 16. When you read my letter, which is what we have as Colossians, when this letter that Tychicus was delivering to them, when this letter is read among you, assuming that it was going to be read, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, isn't that interesting that what we have written to the Colossians, and we saw back in verse 1, that Paul wrote to the Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. And yet he says, this isn't just for you. You share this letter, whether the original or make a copy, and share it with your neighbors down the road. Don't be so provincial. Don't be so greedy about this revelation. Oh, this is our letter, Laodiceans. You can't have our letter. This is private between us and Paul. Well, what about the letter the Laodiceans have? Do we have a letter, Paul, to the Laodiceans? No. We have a word from Jesus to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. But what is this letter? As it says, you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. So there was this exchange of letters, which lead, lends to the, the understanding of how in the world did we get the books that we do have in the New Testament? How did we get the ones in the Old Testament? Is because, at least in the New Testament time period, they were ex- making copies and exchanging them, passing them out to different people. The Romans didn't share their letter. Just not for us. It's for the church, all the churches in Christ. Letter to the Colossians. They share it with your neighbors, the Laodiceans and the Hierapolis, and you get the letter that's coming from them. Paul is very concerned that the truth get out. And he says, read it. Have it read. Win this letter. This was not intended just for the leadership of the Colossian church, the elders, uh, the deacons, and so forth. Win this letter is read among you in in the local assembly, in the meeting of the church. Make sure that you read this letter. You know, the, the idea of reading God's word is so important. It's so, so important that, you know, we have the morning star of the Reformation and we have Wycliffe, but also we have the Reformation, the devotion to translating the word of God from the original languages into the language of the people, from Martin Luther and his German translation, uh, Tyndale and his translation, Wycliffe, of course, some several hundred years before that time period. But we have the emphasis, you need to read God's word. Preaching is important, but reading it for yourself and having a copy for yourself is so important. Reading it in the local assembly is important. And by the way, just a side word about expository preaching. Sometimes we think, what, what is expository preaching? I know it's different than what I've heard in, in other churches, but what is it again? Three words. Read the text. Explain the text. Apply the text. Read it. We read the text. We explain it. We try to, to get the understanding. Sometimes it's very evident what he's talking about, but sometimes maybe there's some things we need to draw out. And then apply it. Read Explain, apply the text. That's expository teaching and so, that's expository study. If you study personally, read the text, explain the text. Not what it means to me, but what does it mean? And then how does it apply to me? What did, what did Paul mean when he wrote this? And so forth. Reading the text is so important. Read this letter. Have it read in the Church of the Laodiceans. Whatever influence or impact the Colossian church had in Laodiceans, they, Paul is saying, have it read. Cause this letter to be read. Make sure that you can do whatever depends upon you, either making a copy or sending a little emissary, and you take the original scroll, and you read it in that church of the Laodiceans, and then vice versa. There's a letter coming from Laodicea. 
I won't go into all the different theories of what that letter is. We don't have a specific letter to Laodicea written by Paul, but the suggestion is, and it's, it's debated and all these kinds of things, it could be that the letter we call the letter to the Ephesians is that letter that Paul is referring to here. There's some various factors. One of the reasons is in the, some of the, many of the original manuscripts of Ephesians, that, that phrase in Ephesus in uh, Ephesians 1 and verse whatever it is, verse 3 maybe. No, verse 1 says, to the saints who are in at Ephesus. Well, that, that phrase at Ephesus isn't in some of the manuscripts. So the question is, was that added in there? Uh, and even the letter itself is, is more of a, a generic, general, beautiful, fantastic, excellent letter, but it doesn't have some of the personal details like we see in Colossians. Hey, Epaphras, who's one of your number, and so forth. Ephesians may have been intended to be a uh, encyclical or a, a circular letter, one to be, it's, not, it's to a region, kind of like Revelation 2 and 3, right? Say to the churches in Asia, well, which churches? Well, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and all these other ones. But Ephesus is usually, I mean, it appears first, Revelation 2, because it was probably the head church, the mother church, if you will, because that's where Paul ministered three years, right? Long-time ministry there, established that church. Paul met with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and so that they had a, a, a large role, I would say, in leading and advancing the gospel in, in Western Asia. And so maybe this letter that he says, I read that letter that's coming from later, maybe it's Ephesians. And maybe it's supposed to make the rounds to the, the churches there. Either which way, the apostles' writings are not to be kept for yourself. They're not to be kept uh, uh, under lock and key. They're to be shared and disseminated and read, 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 read all the time. A very similar expression here is at the end of First Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul says, read this letter. Make sure that you read what I'm sending to you. In fact, he says, I implore you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Don't keep it to yourself, you leaders. Share it with everybody. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 27. So it's important for us to recognize these letters, a primary way for the New Testament teaching to be shared in the New Testament church. The devotion that the people had with or to the apostles' teaching, right? In Acts 2 and verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the uh, breaking of bread and to prayer and to fellowship. I put those in different order. But the apostles' teaching is so important there. And it's important, by the way, as we, uh, as a church, this local church, transition from our kind of founding, founding years to a more established eldership or pastoral uh, work, that it's important for elders, Titus 1 and verse 9 says, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, being able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The apostles' teaching is so important, so much necessary in the life of the church. We don't just get together and talk about sports or the weather or you know, what our, our wonderful children have done in the last week or disobedient children sometimes. Uh, we talk about the Word of God. We have come together to share and read together and to speak to one another the Word of God. It doesn't mean that we need to... You know, excuse me, we talk to each other, quoting Bible verse and so forth, but we, we speak as from God's perspective because we hear plenty enough of the world's perspective on things and, oh, you got a bum, bum deal there. Oh, that's really bad. Or, oh, or you, why aren't you complaining more? That's worldly wisdom. We don't want that. We want God's perspective on things, and it comes from being devoted to his word. We are careful then to read God's word. We're careful to listen to God's word, and we're careful to share it with one another. Paul is near the end of his, of his letter. Hopefully next week, Lord willing, we'll finish and look at a specific word he has to Archippus. 
and verse 17, and then his final greeting, of course. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. It teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it trains us in righteousness. Please help us to give heart and soul to what you have spoken to us and to remember that we ought to share it. It's not something for us to keep for ourselves, but to share your word with our, well, anybody that we come in contact with. Your perspective on life is so different to what we hear in the world and not just here subtly but loud screaming from the rooftops the world has this certain way of thinking and it's anti-god anti-christ anti-bible anti-church anti-righteousness and holiness and yet your word is true it's established and these things that the world offers it's passing away everything the world celebrates is passing away but your righteousness your truth is established forever Please help us to maintain our devotion to you. Please help us to grow in respect to our salvation. Help us to know Christ better and that we would, that, that, that would be evident in our lives as we live for Christ's sake. We pray in his name. Amen.